Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Today is the last Sunday that Brian and Imna worship with us as a church as singles. Lord willing. (laughs) Praise God. So Brian and Imna are getting married next Saturday. And of course, they've been making lots of preparations for that day and many preparations for their marriage, I'm sure. They want you to know you're all invited to their wedding, so make your way down to Russell Kema Evangelical Church Center next Saturday, and you can celebrate their marriage along with the rest of us at Covenant Hope Church. It's almost actually 10 years since I proposed to Hannah. In just a couple of weeks, I'll celebrate 10 years since I did that. And one of the best things that we did, and I know Brian and Imna have done this, one of the best things we did to prepare for our marriage was to go through premarital counseling. And so we started meeting with an elder and his wife at our church that we were a part of in in Kentucky, in America, and we discussed all kinds of different topics, all, all different kinds of things as we prepared for marriage. And we considered each in turn, and we went to different texts in Scripture, and we, we thought about what those, those, those Bible passages taught us about these different things. And so, we talked about things like money. We talked about work, family, conflict. And we considered what God's Word had to say about each of them. And we wanted to submit our lives to God's Word. We wanted to understand what He required of us in those different areas. He cares about how we steward our money. He cares about how we perform in our day job, whether it's as a pastor or not. And He cares about how we handle disagreements. How do we handle conflict? How do we argue? You know, many people think that religion is just one little part of life. Or maybe it's not just a little part of life, but it's still just a part. The parts of our days of our week where we do spiritual things, those are our kind of spiritual moments, and the rest is secular, you know? Maybe you think a little like that. And you think, Christians, you know, we do spiritual stuff around Easter, Christmas time. Well, I know for most of you that's not the case. You're here week in and week out. So, maybe you think Sundays, that's the really spiritual part of my week. Or even if maybe you're like super spiritual, really religious, you get involved in daily devotions. You do some things on your own. Those are spiritual. Maybe you meet with others. You disciple them. Or you come to the midweek Bible study, which will start back up next month. But what about using your credit card in the grocery store? Do you think of that as spiritual? What about when you're filling out spreadsheets at work? What about when you're talking about somebody at the dinner table? Each of these is spiritual. They're a religious act of some sort. Because all of our lives is to be lived to the glory of God. That's what wisdom is, living under God and before others. 
And so in Proverbs, what we've been seeing in these opening six chapters, King Solomon has been counseling. He's been counseling his son, and he's been counseling us about wisdom in God's world. He's preparing his son for life. Like a premarital counselor, he's talked about marriage and physical intimacy. We considered that last week, and the ruin of getting it wrong. He's trying to keep his son from calamity, from disaster, from ruining his life. That's what calamity is, a sudden and severe disaster in your life. And this week, he's actually going to talk about three further forms of folly that will lead, that will end with calamity. Three forms of folly that will lead to calamity. Debt, laziness, and divisiveness. So, if you're not already there, turn with me to Proverbs 6, and we'll consider each of these in turn. But before I read the text, let's pray and ask God for His help. Let's go to Him. Heavenly Father, we do ask that You would speak to us now, Lord, as we come to You to receive the food of Your Holy Word. Lord, would You take that Word and plant it deep in us? Would You shape us, and would You fashion us in Your likeness? All for the glory and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, we're going to consider this text in chunks, those three different follies that I talked about. So, I'll read them in sections throughout the sermon, but the big idea that the Father is communicating here is to keep yourself from calamity. That's what connects these seemingly differing topics that He's going to talk about, to keep yourself from calamity. So, let's consider these three disastrous paths that we should keep off. The first one we see in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Follow along as I read them aloud for us. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go! Hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And so, the first folly that the Father wants to cause us to run from, the path that He says is going to end in disaster, is the path of debt. And he says, escape debt. Escape it. The first thing the father warns the son about is the danger of debt. But actually here we see that it's, it's not even first-hand debt, it's actually second-hand debt. Look at verses 1 and 2. The verses describe this hypothetical situation. He says, if you do this, son, if you find yourself in this situation, and he says, if you've given yourself in pledge as a guarantor, as a, as a security for somebody else, for somebody else's debt. If you've promised to pay the debt of your neighbor, 
if he defaults on paying the debt, then this is what you should do. And look in verse 2 how he pictures what this situation is like in our lives. Look at, the, look at the verbs that he uses there. He says, you are snared in the words of your mouth. You're caught in the words of your mouth. Snared, caught, trapped. It's as if this promise that the, the son has hypothetically made is a self-imposed trap. It's interesting that the father, he doesn't actually even flesh out a specific scenario that this could look like. He doesn't give us details, and so it naturally sparks interest in our minds. We're curious, what does it mean? What, what, what's he referring to? What's this debt for? Why is he giving this security up? What kind of neighbor is he talking about? It says stranger, it says neighbor. Is this a loan for a dishonest deal of some sort, or... He doesn't tell us. The Father doesn't mention any details. Remember, wisdom literature and the Proverbs in particular aren't giving us specific, like a, like a, a specific set of rules and laws that we follow, but they're giving us guidance. They're giving us counsel. They're giving us wisdom to, to think. They're giving us general principles which hold up, they hold true the majority of the time. And nothing in these verses seem to suggest that either the son or the stranger are up to no good. Some people have made a lot out of that word stranger, but it doesn't necessarily have to have a negative connotation when it's used in the Scriptures. And here it's used interchangeably with neighbor. In fact, that word is used three times in this section to refer to that person. And so, the father isn't talking about dodgy deals, that means bad ones, corrupt ones. He's simply saying that being the guarantor for somebody else's debt, promising to pay it off if they don't, is dangerous. He likens this indebtedness, even second-hand debt, as being caught in a trap. Uh, it endangers yourself to put yourself in this situation since it's obligating you to pay off the debt if the person fails. And it's like setting a trap that you yourself fall into. And so the father adds no qualifications. He's not only talking about foolish debts, he's talking about debts in general. He's saying it's a risky position to put yourself in. You're endangering yourself by promising to pay others' debts and thereby indebting yourself. Now, of course, of course, there are legitimate times and where we make calculated decisions and we plan for debts, things like buying a house. Most nobody can pay for a house up front without taking some sort of housing loan or something like that. He's not saying that all debts are wrong. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that they're unlawful in every case to put up security even for a family member or a friend or a neighbor. In fact, my parents actually did this for me when I went to seminary. They said, they wrote their assets down on a piece of paper, they shared their bank account details, and they said to the U.S. government, yes, if he folds on paying his school fees, we'll pay them for him. 
Praise God. I'm thankful for you doing that, mom and dad. But they are still a risk. My parents were taking a risk with me. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You could lose your job, right? You could have an emergency happen. And the Father's not saying if you're in this situation, then you've sinned. If you've got debts, you're in sin. He's not saying don't be generous either. But He is saying you have to be cautious. It's a danger. You have to be careful. You must be wise about putting yourself in this kind of situation. Did you feel the tension that the Father is feeling? Can you hear the alarm bells going off and the the red lights flashing in this text? He says, save yourself. Go, hurry, plead urgently. Don't lose sleep. Don't sleep till you fix this problem. Save yourself, son. And the clear point that the Father is making is that it's wise to avoid and to escape debt as much as possible because it's a danger because it's a burden. In, later in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7, he says that the borrower is the slave of the lender. So, being indebted to someone is like being their slave and them being your master. And we just read earlier in Romans 13, 8, he says, owe no one anything except to love. And so, being in a situation of being indebted is dangerous. It's not ideal, right? We should seek to be very careful about getting into that situation and to try to quickly get out as much as is within our power. Be very wary of committing yourself to be somebody else's security, to be a pledge for somebody else's debt. And you know, it might not even be money. There are times even here in in Dubai where people might say, well, I'll can you just put up your passport for me? Could you put that in pledge? That's a danger. Be careful about doing that. Don't do it without thinking carefully and weighing it seriously. It's impossible to personally counsel you all from up here today about debts that you have in your lives. I'm sure there's many different circumstances, many different situations and variables in play in your lives, but generally speaking, This passage is telling us to avoid being indebted to anyone as much as possible. Because being indebted puts you in danger. It's a trap. Here are just a couple of ways that I've seen this kind of thing in Dubai in particular. First, credit cards trap people. Hannah and I have credit cards, and we use them regularly but we pay them off every month before the next cycle starts and before we start incurring charges, late fees, and interest. We never spend money on our credit cards that we don't have. The reason we use them is to get airline points and travel perks and things like that. And honestly, on a few rare occasions, it's happened where we've been traveling or something's come up, maybe we've been sick, and we forgot to pay off the credit card, and we felt the sting of that late fee and that that extra money we had to pay back. It hurt. And so, let me encourage you to be really careful about having a credit card and using it. Don't have a credit card if you can't use it wisely. 
And if you have one, pay it off quickly. Go and plead your case. Pay off that bill. Go speak to the banks. Try to fix it. Another example, though, that is a lot more, it's a lot more challenging and honestly, it's just a lot more sensitive to navigate is, is one thing that I've noticed in Dubai is that when people move to Dubai, they're often pledging and promising to help provide for other people back home. They've bound themselves to helping, in fact. They've promised to do that. Sometimes it's immediate family, for example, a, a spouse or children. Sometimes it's even extended family, like parents and siblings and aunts and uncles and others. And sometimes it's just a lot of people. There's an ex expectation among family members and friends, in a lot of cases, that by coming to Dubai, we suddenly hit the jackpot and we can provide for everyone back home. That's a common experience that people face. Maybe you're facing that. And we all know that that's not true. Life is expensive here in Dubai and oftentimes it's very difficult. I'm not saying that it's always wrong or that it's bad or that it's sinned to support family back home or to, to commit to helping them. And some t sometimes that's very appropriate, right? Especially with our immediate family members. But this passage does warn us against making those kinds of promises, especially to those that are not our dependents, like a spouse or our children. Beware of putting yourself in debt to keep them out of debt. This might go against your culture, but which should come first? Your culture or what you see in God's Word? And maybe this describes you, and it, it might be really hard. It might be even really hard for you to even talk about this. Let me encourage you to find a few wise friends in this church to talk to about it. If you need help to, to think through it, to carefully consider your situation, and to see if you can get out of that kind of obligation, that kind of burden. One of the reasons arrangements like this are so harmful is not only because they trap you, but they actually, they actually hurt your relationship. Did you see that in the text? It has a damaging effect on your relationship with these family members when we get into these kinds of commitments and obligations. Look at the text. It says, you have come into the hand of your neighbor. That means he owns you. You've committed, now you, he's, he's been pledged. You've given yourself into his hand. And, and look at how it describes your situation. A gazelle in the hand of a hunter. A bird in the hand of a fowler. A fowler is someone who traps birds. In the scenario, you're the animal, and those that you've promised to or pledged to are hunters and, and fowlers. It hurts your relationship. It changes the relationship. It burdens the relationship when we have these kind of monetary obligations and promises involved. And so, if this describes you, let me encourage you to seek wisdom 
and to seek to try and get out of this snare as fast as you can. The Father says, lose no time. Spare no pain. Humble yourself. Go and plead and get out as quickly as you can. Save yourself and escape death. If you have questions about this and you're concerned or you're confused, please come and talk to one of the elders. Or, like I said, talk to a wise, godly member in the church who can help you think through this. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this text, says, delays are dangerous and feeble efforts will not serve. But see, see what care God has in His Word that He's taken time to make men good husbands of their estates and to teach them wisdom in the management of their money. God cares about us and gives us practical guidance to help avoid calamity. So the counselor turns here in this part of the text from the dangerous path of debt to another path that leads to calamity, to laziness. And he uses an interesting example for us to learn from. Listen as I read the next portion of our passage, which is from verse 6 to verse 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Wow. The second foolish path that the Father wants us to avoid is the path of laziness. And His encouragement? Work hard. Work hard. The Father turns from the Son to the sluggard. Now, Slugs, for those of you who aren't familiar with slugs, which is where we get the word sluggard from, slugs are those nasty little slimy, oozing snails that kind of just ooze their way across your garden. I remember going back in the uh, summer to the UK when I was growing up here, and I hadn't really seen them. You don't really get them very much in Dubai, but you can find their trails along the, the garden pathway, just this ooze. It's so gross. What a vivid description of a lazy person, like a slug, just oozing their way through life. They want everything, but they do nothing. I just love this description that one of the commentaries said. It said, the sluggard, he loves ease. He lives in idleness. He minds no business. He sticks to nothing. He brings nothing to pass and is careless in the business of religion. What a dangerous thing that we're tempted towards. And towards the end of Proverbs, there's a wonderfully vivid description of the sluggard who is so lazy that he, he plunges his hand in the bowl of food and he's so tired, he's like, oh, I can't get it to my mouth. That's how lazy he is. He can't even feed himself. And so Solomon sends the sluggard to school. Look in verses 6 through 8, he says, go. 
Go, sluggard, he has to wake him up, right? Consider the ant and learn her ways and be wise. Notice that once again, the author presents wisdom in the feminine, her ways. It's an ironic picture here to send a person to go and learn a lesson from an ant. Because when God made mankind, man and woman were meant to have dignity and honor. We were created in the image of God. We were created to have rule and dominion over the animals. We've fallen so far because of sin that we can even learn from a lowly ant many lessons. Wisdom is is how the world works in the way that God's made it. And so, actually, we don't only learn wisdom from God's Word. We can actually grow in wisdom by observing the world around us and looking and seeing how does it work? How has God designed it? How has He created it? So, what lessons can we learn from the ant? First, she's a self-starter. She initiates. She doesn't need a boss to tell her what to do because she sees work and she goes and does it. She gets on with it. You know, over the last several weeks, I'm not sure if it's a change in the weather or something, but our family has become uh, intimately confronted by this idea that ants know how to work. Our house is filled with them. Hundreds of ants have figured their way into our house. They're crawling all over our things. They find their way into the pantry. They're on our kitchen counters. No matter how much cork we've used to try and seal the holes near the door, they find their way in, and they're eating our stuff. None of you are going to come over to dinner at our house anytime soon, I imagine. We can't keep them away. They're so hard working. And second, we're told that this ant prepares and gathers her food in summer and harvest time. She's a hustler. She gets going. She does work, and she doesn't need to be told what to do. She doesn't need constant supervision. She doesn't need a a ruling officer or someone in charge. She's thinking ahead. She's gathering. She is bringing her things together, waiting for that season when there won't be food to gather. She's proactive. How do you compare to the lowly ant? Do you struggle to start things, and are you tempted often to put things off? Do you initiate with others, or do they always have to initiate with you? Do you play that game? You know that game where we all we create a list of all these little thing, tasks and jobs for ourselves to do so that we don't feel lazy, and we fail to get on with the tasks and jobs and responsibilities that are really present in our lives, the things we're supposed to be doing. Do you find and seize opportunities, or do you need to be told, constantly coached about how to go and do things? Do you procrastinate on important tasks until the last minute, and then you feel burdened and stressed, and you feel like you work yourself into a frenzy? And then you feel like, oh, I was working so hard. But it's like, oh, if you had just been working all along, it wouldn't have been like that. Do you do what's expected at work? Just the bare minimum, what the boss has told you they need to do. Or do you keep going back for more, seeking more, or seeing more tasks that you can perform? 
Or once you're done, do you just sit back and try to look busy at work? Do you need others to keep telling you what they want you to be working on? Or do you find important tasks to complete and then do them, even with no one noticing or asking? Do you look ahead to the future and plan, making the best use of your time today so that you can be prepared for what comes down the road later? The ant is really amazing, isn't she? She takes initiative while the sluggard won't start anything, and of course, he won't complete anything if he doesn't start anything. And so the father as counselor, he shifts from schooling this, this sluggard to scolding him in verses 9 through 11. How long, he says, will you lie there? When will you arise? These are rhetorical questions. They're calling the sluggard to action. Wake up! Get up and get going. It's as though the sluggard is in a constant state of slumber, that all of life is a permanent snooze button. I'll do it in nine minutes, I promise. The sluggard isn't disciplined. Instead, they think, just a little more sleep, just a little more slumber, just a little more rest, a folding of the hands, just a little more Twitter, just a little more scrolling, just another break at the coffee counter, and then I'll get on with it. As one commentary put it, the sluggard won't even commit himself to refusal. He deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders, and so by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. He's saying that the sluggard won't even commit to saying, yeah, I'm not going to do that. He keeps telling himself he's going to do it, but he never does it, so he doesn't get anywhere. It never happens. Friends, friends, if you're anything like me, do you feel the prick of conviction? Repent of laziness. If you see yourself in the mirror of God's Word, repent of sloth. Wake up from your sleepy state and avoid the calamity that laziness leads to. And it's the calamity that this section ends with there in verse 11. Where does laziness lead? It leads to poverty. Poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It's like you're robbing yourself in the future. We saw this same sort of warning in our passage that we read earlier from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's on page 6 of your bulletin. You can turn there if, if you have it. First, the Apostle Paul reminds them of how he was a model to them of hard work and providing for himself. Even though he had the right, he says, he had the right as an apostle to receive money and finance and support for his ministry work, he said, I won't take any. He refused so that he would be an example for them to imitate. But then he issues a similar warning to what we see here in Proverbs 6. There in verse 10, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If someone is able to work, but unwilling to find and, and keep work, he is saying that they will end up in poverty. And he's saying that the church shouldn't support them. What a strong word. It almost sounds ungenerous 
But what does he say we should do instead? We should command and encourage them in the Lord to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Friends, work is not an effect of the fall into sin. It's not a product of Genesis 3. We were created for work. No matter what kind of job we have, whether it's a ministry job or a secular job, we should do it in a way that honors and brings glory to God. Think about it. Adam and Eve, their primary job was like, I guess, like a zookeeper and gardener or something. So, we should work hard as unto the Lord. We'll have the opportunity to think even more about the gospel and our work later today in our prayer meeting after the service. So, stick around to hear from uh, Josue, who will lead us in that time. Um, He's one of the elders of the church, and he's going to address us on this topic. And so, we've considered the paths of debt and laziness, And the last path that we should consider, it's actually a darker path than those others, and the calamity that's described is far worse. Listen as I read the last portion of our passage. This is verses 12 to 19. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly, and in a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This third path that leads to calamity is the path of divisiveness. And the Father's encouragement is for us to preserve unity. While each of the paths that we've considered leads to calamity, there's a clear escalation in the nature and heinousness of the folly that's presented in each one. It gets worse as we go. We first had the son who was warned about the dangers of being unwise about getting themselves into debt. And next, the sluggard was rebuked about the idiocy of idleness. But the final path presents a wicked person a divisive person who's under God's wrath. While the son and the sluggard harm themselves, this worthless person brings harm upon others. Verses 12 through 15 describe the worthless person, and they're basically a mirror image of the things that the Lord hates in verses 16 through 19. It's almost very repetitive. Both speak of evil that's evident from head to toe, flowing from a heart that's perverted and devising evil. But notice that the result of their evil, and it's repeated there in verse 14 and verse 19. You see the result of their evil. They continually sow discord among brothers. That means that they sow strife. They stir up trouble. They turn people against one another. They're trying to divide people. 
And I wonder how this, this list of descriptions, how does it make you feel to think about these descriptions? Crooked speech. That's speaking dishonestly or perversely, perhaps, telling crude jokes, twisting the truth to your own devices, winking with your eyes, signaling with your feet, and pointing with your fingers, crossing your fingers, maybe. These just small gestures that are used to trick and to trap others. And perhaps this is talking about a a con man of sorts that kind of signals for others that he's working with as they try to trick someone. He talks about plotting evil against others in our hearts. And having haughty eyes, that means pride in your heart that is shown with you thinking too much of yourself and thinking the worst of other people, thinking bad thoughts about them. Deliberately provoking others, winding them up. I don't know about you, but each of these was almost a daily occurrence for me as a child. Just ask my brother or my mom and dad. And the reality is that these seeds, though they manifest in different ways between a child and an adult, they're still there. They're still present in the soul soil of our hearts. And sure, there are probably things on this list that don't feel like a temptation to you, but I'm sure that some of them are true and truly tempting. And these are all things that we're told here that God hates. He despises them. He detests them. They're an abomination to Him. And that explains the the consequences that were laid out there in verse 15, that calamity will come upon Him suddenly. Look at verse 16. They disgust the Lord. And if these things are true of me, and of you, then because of our sin, we are an object of God's hatred and wrath. Ouch. That's something that each and every one of us in here has to reckon with. That God hates some things. And God hates sinners that are hurting others. Many of us were raised in churches and Christian traditions which ignored passages like this one that talk about God's hatred towards sin and even sinners. They avoided these passages, or some even have tried to explain them away. They say things like, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. That's not what this passage says. They say that God in the Old Testament was a God of wrath and hatred, but the God of the New Testament, He's a God of love and forgiveness. But God doesn't change. The New Testament actually describes even Christians, saints, as being by nature children of God's wrath until we turn from our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. Yes, God is love. Absolutely. But God is also holy, and God is just. He cares deeply when people are harmed by the actions and sins of others, and it is good that God hates lying. It's good that God hates pride. It's good that He hates violence. 
In fact, if God did not hate those things, we would have to call into question if He really loved. We want a God who hates and opposes evil of all kinds. We want a God who will judge wickedness and sin. But our problem is that we are evil. We are sinners. Our problem is that He will judge our wickedness and our sin. But the good news is that God is also rich in mercy and great in love, so that while we were dead in our sins, He acted in love to rescue us from the calamity of His wrath and His hatred, the wrath that we so rightfully deserve. Unlike the Son, who foolishly takes on debt of his neighbor, Jesus counted the cost and willingly took on the debt of our sins, that our sins deserved. He bore them in his body as he hung and died on the cross for us. Unlike the sluggard who never gets anything done, Jesus completed the work that the Father had given him to rescue and ransom us so that we could know grace. He did the work. We do nothing to contribute to his salvation. It is finished, he cried. Unlike the wicked man, Jesus was perfectly without sin. His words were full of grace and truth. His eyes looked with compassion upon the weak and sinners and sufferers. His heart devised only good for the least and undeserving. And having risen from the grave, he now calls us to come, to be collected, to be united with Him and His church. If we avoid or if we minimize the seriousness of God's hatred against sin, we end up minimizing the magnitude of God's love and grace towards sinners. And that's honestly why so often we're content to keep going on in these sins that we may think are so little, like lying. Brothers and sisters, it's when we marvel at the magnificence of God's goodness to us in Christ, that's when we begin to hate the things that God hates, and we begin to love the things that God loves, and we become more and more like Him. Friends, if, if you are not committed to Christ, and not just on Sundays, but in all of your life, everything, your finances, your job, even to the bottom-most desires of your heart, if you're not committed to Him, then you are still an object of God's wrath. But you needn't be. You needn't be. You can do what the Father says. You can go, run to Him, and plead urgently with Him for forgiveness. Don't delay. Embrace Him by faith, and you will be saved from calamity. Do it today and be free from the trap and snare of sin. Covenant Hope, there's a warning here for us. The malicious, divisive person who sows discord is, is the exact opposite. He's like the, the photo negative of what followers of Jesus should be. And so, the application for us as a church is to preserve unity, not sow discord. 
And we do that in a couple of different ways. First, it's important to recognize that our unity among us as a church, it's built on truth. That's why lying is so offensive to God. Our unity is built on the truth of the gospel. And that's why we seek to make the gospel explicit every single week that we come here. From the first things that Michael says when he welcomes people to the service, to the sermon. We want the gospel to be crystal clear. And it's why God takes lies and falsehoods so seriously, because they divide us. They split us up. And so grow in knowing and celebrating the truth that unites us. Study the the statement of faith that we have as a church, that these doctrines that are so core to who we are, these truths knit our lives together. We also commit as a church in our covenant to work and pray for this unity. It takes work. It takes prayer. Do you pray for the unity of Covenant Hope Church? That we'd be one, even as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one? That we'd not be divided into little factions in our church? This is especially challenging for us in our church, as we see so many people leave and others join, let me encourage you to work hard to get to know and welcome newcomers. And come to our prayer meeting in just a few moments when we'll hear an update and an interview with a new member. Devise plans not to do evil, but devise plans to bring brothers and sisters in the church together. Just like the Tways have done on Saturday nights where they Invite people to come and play board games with them, just to have fellowship and be united together. It's fine to have friendship groups in the church. You're going to have that. You're going to have friends that you're more naturally drawn towards and that you get along with, but fight against exclusive cliques, you know, groups that are are where others are excluded from, and strive to put the supernatural power of the gospel on display by pursuing friendships with people that are totally different from you, where the only thing you really have in common is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how God's manifold wisdom is put on display. When we're united, though we're different because of what Christ has done. The Father has highlighted three paths that lead to calamity not only in this life, but also calamity into eternity. And He's counseled us to save ourselves from them by submitting ourselves to God's way of wisdom laid out in His Word. By God's grace in Christ, we can keep ourselves from calamity. We can escape the trap of eternal debt through Jesus Christ, and we can work hard for the glory of Christ and we can preserve the unity that Christ has secured by His death and His resurrection. Let's pray that we would do that. Heavenly Father, we give You praise that though we do not deserve it, You have made a way for us to become children in Your family and not children of wrath. Lord, we're thankful that You have made a way for us to not face the calamity that we so rightfully deserve, the calamity of being under Your judgment and wrath for all eternity, because Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. 
that we could be forgiven. Lord, pray, would you help us to be financial, uh, to, to, to steward our finances well and to escape the, the dangers of debt? Lord, would you help us to work hard in our jobs and in our lives to bring glory to you? And Lord, would you help us to work hard for the unity that Christ has secured for us, that our church would be one even as you are one? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.